to Life Talks with Stephen and Pam. This is the day that the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Here we go again, getting into Proverbs 18. And this is the day that the Lord has made. And we will be glad in it. Man, isn't it good to live life with God's presence and enjoy all the benefits that are in His presence, His gladness and joy? His delight. Yeah. His delight is on us, and our delight is in Him, and then it makes our heart glad. And you know, the Word of God makes it clear that it's independent of our circumstances. Right. So, you know, you can't be sitting there, well, if the circumstances were better, maybe I'd have some of that joy that you guys got. No, no. God's joy and peace comes to us independent of our circumstances or of our happenstance so that we can have joy and peace even in the midst of struggle in the midst of trials and tribulations, we can get into our King Jesus joy and peace. That's good news. That's very good news. So let's get into God's Word because we know it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow, soul and spirit. Let's get into God's Word, Proverbs 18. Holy Spirit, we just thank you for the privilege we have of access to your presence. We just invite you to breathe this Word into our heart and into our mind convert our hearts, persuade us, Holy Spirit, persuade us at a level, a spiritual level of this word of truth so that we might all come to a greater knowledge of holiness, of the things of God, of the mind of God, that we might know what you're thinking, precious Father, and that we might walk in the paths that you've already ordained for us. We're your workmanship. So, Father God, we just ask that you help us with the help of the Holy Spirit to understand this word of wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Proverbs 18, verse 1. He who willfully separates and estranges himself from God and man seeks his own desires and pretext to break out against all wise and sound judgment. You know, Pam, the word of God says that there is no counsel or wisdom against the Lord. And for somebody to take a position of being an atheist or or to get their own willful desire, I've seen even, God forbid, but people, men and women in ministry actually take their own willful desire and break out against God's will and begin preaching strange things, things that are contrary to the word of God. Psalm 37 verse 4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and that God will give you the desires and the secret petitions of your heart. This is what I found in my life is that I don't even desire the right things until I've been with God and had Him change my way of thinking, convert my way of thinking. There's a scripture, I think it's in Isaiah 45, where it says that, Woe to the person that strives against his maker. Can a worthless piece of broken pottery come out and say to the person that fashions it, that's trying to make it better, say, you know, like, what in the world do you think you're making? (laughs) And hey, where are my handles? Right. (laughs) It's kind of a funny picture. (laughs) But Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, recreated in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he is before ordained. So even in that, there's a lot of submission to the word of truth. And, you know, we don't want to be guilty of standing there, stomping our feet like a little child demanding our way. I saw the comedian Kevin Hart on TV and he was talking about his little girl. He told a story one day where she asked for a cookie. He said, of course you can have a cookie. And as he was walking in the kitchen to get the cookie, he heard his wife yell out, don't you dare get 
give her a cookie. So the little girl starts throwing a tantrum and screaming, and she looks at Kevin and says, Daddy, I thought you were the man of the house. And that's when he said, I snapped, and I started having a tantrum, and I started yelling, why did you buy cookies if she can't have a cookie? I'm shutting this whole cookie operation down. (laughs) (laughs) So one little girl's tantrum got the whole family into a frenzy. Uh, You know, that kind of tantrum or manipulation is a child or an adult, in this case, willfully separating themselves from what's family, what's healthy, boundaries, what's profitable, and even better. In fact, I even think it's in Isaiah 45, where it says after that, talking about the potter and the clay, it says, I think it's in verse 10, woe to that person who complains against their parents that they've begotten them, saying to their father, what are you begetting? And to the woman, why do you travail with me? Just recently, there was a guy that actually brought a lawsuit against his parents for giving birth to him because he was like... He didn't ask to be born. Yeah, I didn't ask to be born and, you know, have all this stuff that I've got to deal with. How dare they not get my permission before I was born? Yeah. And that's where our culture's at. You know, we can kind of grin and think how foolish, but, you know, seriously, that is where our culture's at and where we are without Jesus. That's why we come to the Word of God. We need God's Word. We need that powerful wisdom to set us straight. And it takes pursuit. You know, you you can sit on the couch and with no pursuit and pretty much all evil and wicked way of thinking, wrong way of thinking, offensive way of thinking easily comes to you. But it takes the protocol for receiving wisdom is pursuit. You can't just, it's not going to run to you. Wisdom and understanding, you need to pursue it. And if you don't, you'll become isolated from goodness. You'll become isolated from good people that walk in the love, the mercy of God, the wisdom, the understanding of God. If you choose, you will isolate yourself and wonder, why do I feel so alone? That's good, Pam. It says here, this person who's willful seeks his own desire and pretext to break out against all wise counsel. That word pretext is like a hidden motive, a hidden motive or purpose that's cloaked to hide your real, Mm -hmm. your real intention. And sometimes people have this cloak of intent to indulge in the truth, but really what they're wanting to do is fabricate something and just they're hiding their own guilty motives. That's so true. Number two, a self-confident fool has no delight in understanding, but only in revealing his personal opinions and himself. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it just... It is so true. You've been in situations where it's just like this person just talks incessantly and all it is is about me, me, my, my personal opinions and himself. And I'm sure that I've done in the past, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a self-confident fool. I want to be a confident in Jesus, wise woman of God, a confident in Jesus, wise person. Well, listen, I know I've done this. In my past, God's convicted me of making an idol of my own thoughts, opinions. Mm, that's true. You know, you can make an idol of your own opinion. Yes. Yeah, and again, back to this culture, we're in a day and age right now where people have the craving to be published in one way or another through social media. They are so hungry to exalt their own opinion, even at the expense of truth. It's sad, but that's where we're at, where we've made gods out of our own opinion 
and completely thrown truth overboard. There was an acquaintance, a friend of ours that we met. He's got a great book out. It's passing my mind right now, but he talks about that. He's an apologetic. Oh, that's Abdu Murray, and his book is called Saving Truth. Yes, Saving Truth. Awesome book. And, yeah. and really, he gets into the deep end about how that society as a whole has, for the most part, gone after exalting opinion, making a god out of opinion, and aborting truth. And you said, you know, it used to be he made a good point where, or maybe it was you that made this point, but how that... If it's a really good point, I'll take credit. Yeah, Stephen will take credit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But where it used to be where, you know, someone would believe something that was false, like they thought the earth was flat instead of round, and then they were shown the evidence that the earth is a sphere. They had to bow to the evidence, to the truth. But we're in a society now saying, well, you know, you can't jump out of a plane without a parachute because of the law of gravity. But they're saying, I choose not to believe that is truth. So they jump into a destructive decision saying they don't believe the laws of life apply to them. But tragically, they find out that their truth is just a foolish opinion. It's not even scientific reality. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You and I, years ago, we got to do an interview with a famous Christian scientist who's a cosmologist. And he was saying that some of his colleagues, that as they make more discoveries in space and as technology advances and they get to see more and know more from the stars and the heavens and all of the things that they study, he said one by one, they come to a place where, and he said one scientist said it so well to him, he said, we just made this discovery and has it come to this? There is an intelligent designer. I have to believe in God. This man had to actually submit his will and say, wow, has it come to this? (laughs) I actually have to believe in God now because he's saying the proof, what they're discovering is persuading their heart. And you know, isn't that what the word of God says, that the heavens declare the handiwork of God? Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is among scientists who study outer space, there's a high rate of conversion to Christianity because the heavens declare the work of the Lord. Yeah, so they're true. looking at it day and night. And as they gaze into the heavens, I guess just like Abraham did many thousands of years ago when he looked into the heavens, he literally saw the prophetic signs of God's love for mankind and God's mercy, even through the constellations. It's so amazing. Oh yeah, it really is. Verse three, when the wicked comes in to the depth of evil, So I kind of see that as when the wicked comes into a almost a place of maturing into the depths of their evil. It's been a process. They keep stepping further and further into it. It says here, he becomes a contemptuous despiser of all that is pure and good. And with inner baseness comes outer shame and reproach. Pam, I've often thought about this biblical principle that what's on the inside ends up manifesting on the outside. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this, seeing some people on TV or in the media, and, you know, you can tell that there are people that maybe have not wanted to believe on Jesus or God, but they still have a sweetness about them. But as they get into it and give themselves wholly to that, they literally start morphing. Their outward appearance morphs into ugliness. And you think, what's going on there? There's a darkness in their eyes. You can tell they're so unhappy and just miserable. Jesus said this, do you guys not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so in other words, a little agitation from the enemy, a little bit of ferment from the enemy 
think about it, if you've got pure water and just a little poison, would you be willing to tolerate just a little poison in your bucket of drinking water? You'd be like, no, not at all. I don't. To me, the moment you drop even just a little in that big bucket of water. That poison will contaminate all the supply. Your heart is like, no, that whole thing's non-drinkable to me. It's contaminated. This is the way it is with evil. Evil takes over your heart. and Even offense, unforgiveness can be put in that label as well. The picture here that it's given us a progressive walk into it when the wicked comes into the depth of evil. So there's been a progression. Absolutely. And that's why it's so deceptive. And I like to believe because God is long-suffering and merciful. All along the way, there's been little road signs and warnings going, repent. That's right. Come on, turn around. Change your way of thinking. It's not too late. Change your way of thinking right now. I would think of King David and... King Saul. King Saul refused to repent. He acted like he repented, but he really wasn't repenting at all for so much sins that he had done, and he lost his kingdom for it. On the other hand, King David sinned horribly, but when he was presented with it, he fell on his face and started sobbing and quickly turned from his wicked ways. He didn't blame somebody else. He didn't blame anybody else but himself, repented, and he didn't lose his kingdom. And I think seeing King David, he had started walking in wrong, and then David said, I've sinned. It's my fault. God, forgive me. God, have mercy on me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. King Saul just gave himself over to his ego and took no responsibility for his sin. The difference between two kings and their destiny, not based on their perfection or righteousness, but based on their willingness to own it, to take responsibility and repent. For the words of a discreet and wise person's mouth are like deep waters, plenteous and difficult to fathom. And the fountain of skillful and godly wisdom is like a gushing stream, sparkling, fresh, pure and life-giving. So it's kind of a contrast to verse 3 where we have the evil person stepping deeper and deeper into evil. And then it says, with inner baseness comes outer shame. So it's like the poison on the inside ends up coming out to the outside and manifesting. Well, in this case, we get verse 4, a complete opposite. We have the words of the discreet and the wise. They end up being deep waters. Well, deep waters are like a spring that always comes up right. and manifests. <laughs> and it refreshes not only those close by, but those in a distance around. The fountain of skillful and godly wisdom is like gushing stream. Wow! So those who are close get to enjoy the benefits of it. But a stream moves. It goes a distance, right? And it ends up being a blessing to those who are downriver. This is our desire. We pray this quite often. We always pray, Lord, I thank you, Father, that what you're putting in our mouth to give to the people in those thousand places of influence around the world and individuals, Lord, make our mouth and make the wisdom and understanding that you give us through anything you put in our hands, make it a gushing stream for the people, sparkling, fresh, pure, and life-giving. That's why we're so excited that you're listening today. We trust in Jesus' name. We pray this. We thank you. Thank the Father that the things that we're giving to you is going to be sparkling, fresh, pure, and life-giving for you and your family. Yes, Pam. That's an exciting word picture of what God has for his sons and daughters. That's why Jesus was on assignment to tell us in John, if any man or woman thirsts, let that person come unto me and drink. Yes, drink in God's river of life. 
Well, if you're drinking Jesus, you're getting filled with his wisdom, with his joy, with his peace, with his love. But it says Jesus said he will drink and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So he becomes satisfied for himself, but then he also becomes a river of blessing to those around him. Amen to that. So I love that picture. Verse five, to respect the person of the wicked and be partial to that person so as to deprive the consistently righteous of justice is not good. Mm. <laughs> I think that's an understatement, really, to respect persons of the wicked and be partial to the wicked. And then doing that, you deprive the consistently righteous of justice. The Bible's going, that's not good. Yeah, that won't turn out good for you. And believe me, God, who looks not just on the outward appearance, but on the inside, on the heart, he knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. And if this is a pretext right? If you're doing something what seems benevolent, but it's really a pretext. To try to put for, down the good person. Well, for injustice. Injustice. Then yeah. God's going, I know what's going on. And believe me, I judge it and it's not good. Right. Verse six, a self-confident fool's lips bring contention and his mouth invites a beating. I think I want to avoid speaking <laughs> foolish words because I, I, mean, I don't have no be appetite for yeah. inviting a beating. Hey, everybody, I'm over here. If you got some sticks yeah, and you, you want to beat me, you can. It's amazing to me is that Jesus, the very personification here on earth of wisdom, it says that he didn't hide his face from the shame and the spitting. Jesus took Stephen's beatings on him. There's been foolish times in my life. For you who are listening, this is why I say, when these things come up, don't let the enemy, the accuser, condemn you, but be encouraged. If you've been foolish, like I've been foolish in my life, remember Jesus. Think about Jesus. Jesus didn't hide his face from the shame and the spitting, and he did not hide his face or his body from the bruising. Mm -hmm. Jesus took Stephen's bruising. He took my beating. He took many beatings. Jesus took it all for me. He suffered for us to pay the price. So when I read this, a self-confident fool's lips bring contention and his mouth invites a beating. I think to myself, well, there's been times in my life where I believe I've spoken foolishness and Jesus Jesus right here steps into verse six and he says, Stephen, I took your beating for you. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. So how do I institute that in my life? How do I appropriate that for Stephen's life? I go back to the cross, mm -hmm. the victorious place of King Jesus. And I say, Master, I've spoken some foolish things. The other day I spoke some foolish things to Pam. Lord, I repent of it. I come to the cross and I ask for your blessing. I ask for your help that I can be a blessing to my family and to those around me. That's how you handle that. Verse 7, a self-confident fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to himself. My friend, guard your heart, and in guarding your heart, that means you have to put a seal upon your lips and realize that a fool's lips, a fool's words, invite a beating. It says here, a fool's mouth is his ruin. You see a person in ruin? Their mouth was complicit in that thing. Their lips are a snare to themselves. So, you know, when you're a fool, you don't mind speaking lies, you don't mind gossiping, you don't mind accusing people. When you sow accusations, guess what you get to reap? When you sow godless judgment that basically measures people, judges them, and then condemns them, and then executes them with your lips, well, then you invite harsh judgment on yourself. Let's repent of being a fool and speaking our own ruin, and let's just come to Jesus and let him purify our words, let our words be in alignment with the word of God. That's true. And I just want to interject, go to our website. There's so many different life tools, master classes, things that talk about winning communication and it unfolds it in a full course. So I really think you'll enjoy that.
We want to help you guys. You know, that's what this podcast is about. We want to help keep the Word of God in front of your eyes and in your ears because our confidence isn't in Pam and Stephen. Our confidence is in the Lord and His Word because God's Word never returns empty or void or without accomplishing what Father God's purposed it. And it works eternal benefits and rewards for you and me. We believe that. We've seen it. And that's why we're heavy into God's Word here and just opening it up and asking the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. Verse 8. The words of a whisper or talebearer are as dainty morsels that go down into the innermost parts of the body. A whisperer and a talebearer is into gossiping, aren't they, Pam? That's right. They can seem like little, sweet, little croissants. <laughs> oh, yeah. Little jelly-filled <laughs> little donuts. They can seem like they're sweet to the table. Oh, what, what, what is it? Jennifer, what is that you have to say? What's what's happening? I, I want to pray about this, so yeah. I want to... <laughs> oh, my goodness, that is so true. They can seem like little dainty morsels, but it says that it actually goes down into your physical being of your body and gossip and tail bearing like that can affect your health. I've and been, I don't think it's for good. No, as Dr. Don Colbert tells us, it actually affects and starts weakening a lot of your organs where you can set yourself up to get diseased. You know, it's interesting. And I thought, Lord, help me. I don't want to be that kind of person. I remember being with someone that I didn't spend a lot of time with, but I considered her a friend, you know, more than an acquaintance. As I began to think about our visits together, even though they were few and far between, every time the general theme was negative. It never is positive. Sharing hurts, that's different. But we're supposed to help one another and even sorrow with one another and help take concerns to the cross of Jesus. That's good, but that's different than just negativity. But have you ever been around some people where every time you leave them, you're depressed? Right. Every time you think, you know, there was not one ounce of God's goodness even proclaimed in the situation or an answer. There was no prayer given. There was no hope for it. It was just all about what this person and then they jump from this person to that person to this person to that person. And then you get into that's right. Right. And I think it's really depressing. I don't want to be that kind of person. <laughs> well, I remember reading this excellent book by a Baptist pastor. Unfortunately, I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, in the book, I've never forgotten this. He said, small minds discuss people, mediocre minds discuss events, but great minds discuss ideas. Mm. I think if you want to think great thoughts, and we've talked about this, you have a responsibility to set your mind. So in setting your mind on great thoughts, you need to walk with people that talk ideas, that talk vision, that talk forward motion, not backward motion. You can't live life looking in the rearview mirror or discussing what people are doing. There's always going to be people every day that are doing something, making a mistake. Good people make mistakes and do something wrong. You can't sit around talking about what other people are doing wrong. You've got to plug into the Holy Spirit and God's Word, and you got to launch forward. And that means it's good to be equally yoked. The Word says, can two walk together except they be agreed? If you're going to walk with somebody, the conversations, it usually defaults to the lowest denominator, right? right? right. So pick the people that you want to walk with. Therefore, you pick the quality or character of the conversation you end up having. Verse 9, he who is loose and slack in his work is brother to him who is a destroyer. Now, remember this, Pam, that's heavy because Satan is the destroyer. So let me read that again. He who is loose and slack in his work is brother to him who is a destroyer, and he who does not use his endeavors to heal himself is brother to him who commits suicide. So I feel like the word of God, the word of wisdom, is giving us the end outcome of a failed process, 
right? When we become loose and slack in our work, it's the opposite of the wise steward. The person we all want to be. What's the opposite of a wise steward would be a foolish steward. When we hear the parable that Jesus tells, there's two wise stewards and there's one foolish steward who just buries their talent, the investment that the king gave them because of fear, because of maybe a poverty mindset, because of always another excuse. Oh yeah, it's easy to get into hiding behind excuses. The foolish steward, he blamed the king. He said, I knew you were a hard man. Yeah, I knew it's your fault. I kind of knew you were a hard man. We're not called to be anything but good stewards, wise stewards. And this person here who deals with a loose and a slack work ethic. Well, okay, I mean, you know, you know, one inch one way, one inch another way, who cares? I've seen people even working in houses kind of like that with a, a slap happy approach. And then every time something happens or the boss isn't happy with their work or they have to redo something, it's always somebody else's fault. Right, right. And it says in this process of looseness and slackness and laziness, This person is actually partnered with a destroyer. Mm, That's good. And then look at that. He who does not use his own endeavors to heal himself. I've seen people that come forward for prayer. They want healing, but they don't want instruction. Maybe they're eating something that's like poison to their body. Oh, this sounds awful familiar. They're like, no, no, Pam, just pray for me. Just pray that this itch and this scratch goes away. You know, I don't want any instruction Mm -hmm. on what not to eat or what to eat. Just I got to have my favorite little indulgence there. So, you know, don't bother with that. Just pray that I get well. Well, it says that kind of thinking and that kind of um, yielding to that process is like being a companion of somebody who ultimately the outcome is you commit suicide. You end up killing yourself. And I think this is really important. It seems like a hard word because it's easier for us to just put it on God. God's trying to teach me something. This is just my lot in life. And, you know, I think you need to put your shoulders back and have a little bit of courage. We all need to judge ourselves in a good way, not condemning ourselves, but like, what am I doing that's not consistent, that's not being faithful? What am I being slack in? Is it communication? Somebody in your work or somebody that's a blessing to you texts you and you don't even respond. Don't even say, I'll get back to you later. Don't even thank them. Or it might be proper communication. There's things that you can weigh yourself as the Holy Spirit unfolds it. What am I being loose and slack in? Do I need to go back and be consistent in? Because sometimes it's not God trying to teach us something. Sometimes it's not even the devil fighting, although he always is trying to to destroy us. Sometimes it's us bringing it on of ourselves, And that's hard to say. Times in my life when I've realized that, it's hard. It's hard to swallow that. But if you can and go on, it's a blessing. Jesus said this. Here's the principle I'm laying out for you guys. If you're faithful in the little things, and this is the way the kingdom of God works, if you're faithful in the little things, you will be put over much. Right. You'll be rewarded. You'll be welcomed into the joy of your master. Who mm-hmm. doesn't want to be in that yeah, place? that's so true. Well, that's the place to live. And you will be put over much. We're stewards of our bodies. And there was a time when I was really struggling physically and feeling sick all the time, just feeling weak and sick. And we went to our friend, Dr. Don Colbert, and he was like, check me out. And he was like, Stephen, you got to put wheat on the altar. You got to put gluten on the altar. Through your life, you've built up an intolerance toward gluten and you got to put it on the altar. And I could have said, well, no, no, I've got faith for the Lord to heal me. But you see, I believe that God was healing me. He was giving me the instruction of wisdom. He was healing my body. And he was also helping me to stay disciplined Mm -hmm. and to work the work of wisdom, which was to put gluten on the altar, step away within like a month or two. I was feeling like 300% better. Within days, you were feeling better. Yeah, and I even looked better. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Because sometimes when you eat gluten, you get little puffy eyes. Now when I look back at pictures (laughs) of me, I can tell. I look at pictures and I'm like, oh, 
there's my, I can tell I got gluten face that day. My I face had too is many all rolls <laughs> that day. <laughs> Number so 10. let me just back up there. I just okay. want to say, he who is loose and slack in his work is brother to him who is a destroyer. And we can be complicit in destroying ourselves. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The consistently righteous, upright and in right standing with God runs into it and they are safe. High above evil, and they are strong. Woo woo! Again, that deserves an yay for us. So, how do we run into the name of the Lord? If the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and when we run into the name of the Lord, we're safe, we're set up on high, and we're in a strong place, how in the world do you run into the name of the Lord, Pam? The name of the Lord represents the identity of someone, right? So you have to run into all that Jesus is, and that takes time to understand his way, how he thinks, how he does things. Running into God, kind of like run into his identity, run into all he is, his joy, his peace, his love. There are names of God. We know Jehovah Jireh means the Lord who provides. Mm, Yeah. There are names of God that mean the Lord is peace. Adonai means Lord. El Shaddai means God Almighty. Of course, there's Abba, which means Father. Elohim, which means creator. All these are facets of his character, attributes, and yes, who God is in the purest sense of his identity. So when we talk about running into the name of the Lord to bring it into a, let's say, a contemporary way of thinking about it. And Pam, I really like you tying the name directly to the identity and therefore representing the character. We have certain brand names here on earth that are big names, you know, like so what are you flying this next week? Well, I'm flying Delta or I'm flying JetBlue. You go into that oh, name. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. You that's go true. into that brand. You know, what credit card do you use? Or where do you shop? I mean, you seem to always look so nice. I go to Nordstrom's or I go to Macy's or I go to this company or this company. You know, what are you wearing? They do that on the red carpet. Oh, Jennifer, you look so beautiful. <laughs> I'm wearing Chanel. Yeah, you know, right, that kind right. of thing. <laughs> We're a people that are used to brands. Mm-hmm. And brand is what represents the identity, the the wholeness of that company and all that it really is in its character. So for me, when I read that, thinking in contemporary examples of what society understands regarding identity and the familiar expectations built into brand equity. For example, if a movie company has a reputation for a certain standard of film and success, their name will automatically have a certain amount of industry draw and acceptance. Everybody gets excited about a new Pixar movie because it's going to be like, (laughs) well, here... The name of the Lord, let's convert it a little bit here, the brand of the Lord. Huh? Mm, oh, now I'm starting to see, see something. The brand of the Lord is a strong tower. The DNA of the Lord. Right? The identity of the Lord, the brand of the Lord, the name of the Lord. If a multi-billionaire who had a great name gave you their special credit card, you could put confidence in his name right? That's good. So you could walk into any store, into any car company, and somebody's selling Bugattis. That's a very expensive car. You walk in with the name on this card and all that it represents. And you could say, hey, I've got the name here. Well, we've got the name of the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. In his name is healing, provision. In his name is joy unspeakable and full of glory. In his name, the angels reverently bow and submit and adhere to everything that's in alignment with the King Mm -hmm. of all kings' name. In his name, think about this, Pam. In his name, every adversary, every foe must come into submission 
subjection and come under the power. Even before Jesus did the work of the cross, all the demons, thousand demons plus in that one man came up and forced him to bow at Jesus' feet (laughs) and said, what have you to do with us? Our Mm. time is not yet come. They were already subject to the name of the King of all kings. so So now that we've got Jesus, the name that has already accomplished the work of the cross, my friend, now read it like this. Mm. The name of the Lord, the brand (laughs) of the Lord, the name equity of God Almighty is a strong tower. Mm. The consistently righteous person, upright and in right standing with God, runs into that name. Mm -hmm. And they're safe. They're high above all evil. They're strong. They're provided for. They're protected. They're directed. They are healed. They are made whole. Put your confidence in the name of the Lord. Man, I'm going to do it. Man. That's a winning verse, isn't it? Sure it sure is. Woo! You know, Man, some somebody of, ought to write a song. <laughs> I, well, I just did write a song. Praise the Lord. <laughs> It'll be on the worship collection. What's the name of that song? Have you actually settled on the name of that song yet? It's called Heart of Love, and uh, it's going to be on iTunes. Also, please email us at our website or call our office for updates on the song. I think you'll really enjoy it. Verse 11, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. And as a high protecting wall in his own imagination and conceit. Now, what a contrast. We just came out from focusing on magnifying the name of the Mm -hmm. Lord in our life. And you can just feel the room gets electric talking about the name of the king of all kings. But now we go to 11 and it's like, well, but the rich man's wealth is, that's his strong city. Right. In his own imagination. That's right, Pam. It's all in his own imagination. Now, the rich man's wealth can't protect him from disease and the rich man's wealth can't really protect him against asteroids from outer space or from sinkholes underneath of him. And the rich man's wealth can't do anything to protect him from the fires of hell for all eternity. But in his own imagination and in his own stupid conceit, It's a high and protecting wall. Right. And it's not. It's a mirage. It really is. It's a weak protection, I would say. 12 goes along with 11. Haughtiness comes before disaster, but humility comes before honor. We've talked about this before, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. You know, it's God's will for you to be lifted up, to be exalted under his hand. And notice that. You know, you humble yourself under his hand and he exalts you. You never are out from under his hand. You don't want to be. We want to be under God's wing. But he exalts you because God's going places. Oh, that's right. God's not stuck. If you're under the wing of God, he's soaring above and above and above the clouds and above the winds of adversity. So it really is God's will for you to go higher and higher and higher because you're under God and God's always moving at the speed of light up higher. And, you know, I'm really have been seeing the great effectiveness the Lord has been showing you and I in our private life unfolding in recent times uh, what true honor is, how to give honor to God and how to give honor to people. Because the word says when you do that and you humble yourself, then God honors us. He pours his honor back on us. What that means, I've seen you preach this message in, in uh, many churches, and it seems like every single time I watch from the back how the posture of the people 
It's like a mass repentance, people crying, but in a good way, realizing, oh my goodness, this is what's missing in my life. I haven't understood what true honor is to give to the Lord or how to receive that back. And you know, you've got a, a master class on it called True Honor, how to live it and how to walk in it. If you click on livingroomchurch.org, you can get the app along with all kinds of updates, life tools, free encouragement, and stuff that's just for you. It's very exciting. Honor is the key to being in the promised land. Trust me, friend, you don't just want honor. You need honor. Psalm 8, verse 5, God gives us the template, and this is what was stolen in the Garden of Eden, but in Psalm 8, verse 5, we come to realize that we were designed by God and made to have a crown of honor and glory. Without God setting that empowerment of glory and honor on you, you can't fulfill your purpose. If you feel like you're frustrated in your purpose, it's because you don't have on the crown of honor and glory that only God can put on your brow. It's the thing that is made to light up your identity and your design. So it's a deep teaching, but when we humble ourselves, and to truly humble yourself means to be fully submitted to the truth with a capital T. So when you submit to the truth, imagine yourself submitting and bowing before the King of all kings. And instinctively within the King of all kings, he is going to put a reward of a crown of honor upon your brow, because that's why he died on the cross, to restore to mankind what was taken in the garden. And that was the first thing that was taken from man in the garden when he lost the glory. He lost the covering. He lost the glory covering. And once he lost the glory covering, he began just grasping at stuff. And at that point, it was leaves trying to cover his nakedness with leaves. Not the best outfit to try to cover up your shame. We got to get back that honor crown. And that comes from the king of all kings. Amen to that. Verse 13. He who answers a matter before he hears the facts, it's folly and shame to him. Pam, I feel like that goes along with be quick to hear and slow to speak. Yeah, that's right. When you're quick to hear and slow to speak, slowing down your mouth from getting out in front of your head, you'll hear all the facts. You won't just kind of weigh in on a matter before you've heard the entirety of something. When you're trying to even help people, if you just hear one side of the story, you're weighing in prematurely because there's always another side. Oh yes, that's so true. Verse 14, the strong spirit of a man sustains him in bodily pain or trouble, but a weak and broken spirit who can raise up or bear. That's so true. We've seen that when people have a physical condition, but when their spirit is broken, and a lot of times the broken spirit is the thing that ends up leading to the outcome of a, of phys- a broken body, yeah, of a physical yeah. breakdown, so true. right? When you're depressed and broken with anxiety and fear inside, the word says that you know a mournful heart, a sorrowful heart ends up leading to a dryness and a rottenness of the bones. So we're talking about when somebody has a strong spirit filled with joy and peace on the inside. My mom's been a nurse for years, and I remember her telling me about so many times when people were in the hospital, and there was just a joy and a gladness to them. And even in the midst of a doctor's report that was quite heavy, quite consequential, she would say that that person, it was amazing. (laughs) All of us nurses would be like, wow, like they're just really bouncing back and they're really coming through it. Well, I feel like a joyful heart and a happy heart, it really jacks up your immune system. There's a spirit man and woman inside of us, and we can build it up in our most holy faith by receiving God's joy and His peace. I think what this is doing is encouraging us. Let's say if you have a bad doctor's report or if you are struggling with some kind of infirmity, you know, some kind of sickness, 
don't just help your body with medicine or with nutrition, but also feed your inner man because get your spirit filled mm-hmm. with the word. Get your spirit filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Come on, right now, let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. We invite you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy fill Spirit. Fill us to the overflowing. And yes. as you fill us, the fruits of the Holy Spirit come out of us. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There's no law against any of these things. They're strong and they're powerful. Yes, amen. <laughs> I'm thinking of a story when many years ago, I was wheezing real bad. I used to have symptoms of asthma, and I was on the way to the hospital because I could hardly breathe. And I remember just gasping and saying, thank thank you, Lord. I love you. I praise you. You know, I could hardly get it out, but I was even starting to sing, your glory, you're my breath. You're my breath, Lord. You're my joy, Lord. You're my sustenance, Lord. I didn't say sustenance, but because I could hardly get it out. But (laughs) I was like, you're my joy, Jesus. You're my breath, Jesus. And you know what? By the time I got to the hospital, my body had reacted to the spirit woman rising up and proclaiming God's goodness, and I, I didn't even need to go. I could breathe fine. That's awesome. I think it was Kenneth Hagin. I read a book. I think it was Kenneth Hagin. Anyway, in the book, he tells a story of a person who had a terrible lung disease, and their lungs were full of holes. They could barely breathe. And at a certain point, this man, he realized he was dying. And while all of his family was away, he crawled. He lived out in the country. He could just see this tree out his window. And he crawled on his hands and knees through his house, down out in the front porch to this tree way out in the yard, and sat under the tree. And then he began to lift his hands and began to just praise the Lord. And he said, at first, it just sounded like, praise the Lord. Right. Pray, praise the Lord. Just so weak and frail and just raggedy. And he said, within a half an hour of just (laughs) hands lifted, praising the Lord, suddenly supernatural strength. Well, think about it. He was practicing the presence of God. In the presence of God is fullness of joy at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Part of those pleasures are his healing virtue of Jesus. Praise God. We get to use his anointing power. Next thing you know, within a half an hour, he was standing up, hands raised, screaming and shouting, glory to God, praise God, I'm healed. And they said that they could hear him for a couple of miles away, just yelling at the top of his lungs. And now, miraculously, every time, once a year, he goes for a physical, this gentleman, and he gets some kind of scan or MRI. They always come back with their jaw open because they can still see the holes in his lungs. Oh, wow. That's amazing. But he lives second by second, supernaturally restored and healed his supernatural spirit man sustains him. He can totally be Even fine. though in mm-hmm. the natural, it looks like his physical body has still got those raggedy lungs. But in the spirit realm, he is completely healed and whole. So God does things like that. He does wonders like that so that even medical staff, that's what they do. They wonder. And then they walk back in without him telling anybody about Jesus first. Right. It's like he sets them up by seeing the miracle. Then they walk back in with these x-rays and they're like, how? What? You Like, you should be laying on the floor, like, basically dead. Well, this is what's happened. Jesus is alive in my life, and Jesus <laughs> right. has done this, and Jesus sustains me breath by breath. Thank you, Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you, Jesus. Verse 15, the mind of the prudent is ever getting knowledge. So the mind of the person who's got foresight for the future is ever getting knowledge. And the ear of the wise is ever seeking, inquiring for, and craving knowledge. This is what we've talked about. Get good books written by anointed authors. Get great biographies of overcoming people, especially who have had an experience with a faith in Christ. Real faith heroes and mentors. Let them inspire you, but get knowledge 
The Word says for us to think on whatever is true and right. We're supposed to meditate on good things. Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, consider the birds of the air. That's why sometimes I just like to watch. Duck wars in the spring when the boy ducks get into fights on our little lake. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Probably not the inspiration I was thinking of, but still entertaining. Jesus probably wanted us to be inspired by something other than male duck wars, (laughs) but I was actually thinking, or I was actually going to say, I get inspired by those animal shows. Right. From the mountains to the valleys, the flowers, think of something as common as air. Yes, wonderful, amazing air. It's made up perfect for breathing, it just so happens to be, and it acts as a sunscreen from the harmful ultraviolet radiation of the sun. Even our sky is blue because of our air. Think of those pictures that we see taken from the moon. The sky is always dark because there's no air like here on Earth. We talked about those scientists. The more knowledge they get looking into space and the more they see what God's handiwork is without even realizing at that point it's God's, they become persuaded from the inside out by the knowledge of God that this is intelligent design. Yeah, Exactly. And what we need, as you were talking, I was thinking, be discerning what you need at that moment. If you've gone to 15 conferences on the exact same subject, you might just need to want to walk in that. Yeah, that's good. But let's say you're having problem with winning communication. Well, take our master class on winning communication, but seek out books. Maybe you're having problem with communication over and over in your work, in your family, in your friends, in your situation. You don't feel like things are connecting. Well, it's nice that you went to this conference that was dealing with something, but now, okay, that's great. Apply that. Now you need to seek wisdom and understanding and knowledge on how to communicate. So be discerning what wisdom that you need to get. I had somebody come to me a couple years ago. And they were really having situations in their marriage, precious people, but they really needed help. They were hurting. She was getting ready to go to the probably the 10th conference, another worship conference, which, great, we do worship conferences. Your marriage is falling apart. But their marriage, and I said they didn't have any money to go to like a Christian counselor. And I said, listen, you might want to consider not putting that money this time for the 10th worship conference. I think, you know, just apply what you've learned. Seek out wisdom now for your marriage how to communicate, how to heal, how to good prosper point. it and build it. You know, if you're struggling with your children, get wisdom, get understanding, get knowledge, pursue it. Exactly. Help yourself. Right? Go after that thing. It's good to pray. It's good to go, oh God, help me with my children. But when you pray that prayer, God is going to lead you on the path of finding knowledge, how to better communicate with your children. God may lead you to the simple wisdom of how to work better synergistically with your spouse. Or if you're a single parent, God will lead you to allies in his family to help lighten the load. Yeah, that's good. God will give you his knowledge regarding what's the best learning environment for your child and how to get it regardless of how much money you have. You know, when you're praying, God's not going to just wave a wand and there you go, all of a sudden your children are obedient and everything. God's going to give you the process. He's going to give you knowledge because here's the thing is when you gain knowledge of how to raise your children, you become a conduit of that and a blesser of that to other people, to other younger couples who are struggling maybe with leading their children. And you can step in and say, hey, let's go for a coffee. Let me share some of the things that I've learned that would be wisdom to help you in raising your children. That's good. 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. You know, I think we have to understand that God is the giver of all our gifts, but a gift will open doors sometimes for us and bring us before great men. Uh, But what we do when we get in that door is another story. And I think it's how we handle that gift. A man's gift makes room for him. Notice it's not a bribe. No, it's not. So it could be your gift of... 
connecting people. <laughs> right. It could be <laughs> it could be a talent. When yeah. we talk about a gift, it could be a talent or a, an inherent quality that you've got that manifests in your profession. It could be a spiritual gift. You could have a prophetic gift or a pastoral gift. It could be even a gift of something that's in your hand to give. It could be some money. It could be a car. It could be a favor. It right, could be an right. opportunity. It's not a bribe because it's motivated by God. It's a right gift, and it will make room for you and bring you before great people. For me, built into that is the act of giving, which to me prompts the thought of you give and you reap. Right. You sow <laughs> and you reap. You That's give right. and you gather. Verse 17, he who states his case first, that person seems right, until his rival comes along and cross-examines him. And I think that's why we come back to where it says, um, verse 13, when you answer a matter before you hear it, you know, it ends up being folly and shame to him. Why? Because the guy who states his case first, verse 17, that guy seems right. But then his rival comes along and, wow, he's got a pretty persuasive argument, kind of puts holes in the first guy's story. So be quick to hear and slow. Slow to speak. Yeah. 18. To cast lots puts an end to disputes and decides between powerful contenders. I asked you one time about this, and you said back in these days they used to cast lots, but now we have the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you want to explain that, because it really helped me. Back in those days, Pam, Proverbs was written back before even Jesus walked the earth and went to the cross. So obviously then, this is before Jesus had the Holy Spirit on assignment to live with us and in us, guiding us. Bible scholars say these lots were inscribed with numbers, names, symbols that would help the individuals in the dispute avoid any perception of human or outside interference in the final decision. We will agree to abide by the outcome of casting these lots. Come on, number seven. (laughs) In a way, it was like flipping a coin. In fact, New Living Translation says, flipping a coin can end arguments. I remember when we were kids, mom would sometimes, depending on if there was a chore to do that nobody wanted, she would do the straws. Like, And so if you drew the short (laughs) straw, but you know, the funny thing is we would all agree to it. It was kind of like, okay, guys. Is everybody in agreement that whoever draws a short straw, that's who will vacuum the living room? That's who will get the job. It would kind of force us all to be in agreement ahead of time. And we're like, okay, okay. Oh, come on, long straw. Come on, long straw. And so she would put her hand together, hide the straws. And then, of course, we would make our choice. And the lot fell the way the lot fell. And as the saying goes, whoever drew the short stick, or in this case, The short straw would have to vacuum or do the dishes. There might be a little bit of, especially with kids, sometimes there could be a little bit of argument, but mom would point us back. You guys all agreed. You agreed. Everybody was in agreement. That's right. And I think in a way, that's kind of what comes out of this. To cast lots puts an end to disputes. Think about it. When major multi-billion dollar football teams get together, Mm -hmm. you know, in a high stakes game like the Super Bowl. And they're trying to decide who gets to kick first and who receives first. Yeah, I know. Right? How do they settle that decision? In a way, they pull a Proverbs 18.18. Yeah. They pull out a coin. They pull out the lot and they cast it. And it decides between powerful contenders. I feel like Proverbs 18.18 gives us... This is sometimes how you can handle disputes between people. This is sometimes how you can decide who goes first and who goes second. Right? A flip of the coin, <laughs> drawing the straws. You got five contenders. Whoever draws the short straw, that's who you know is gonna who's gonna end up cleaning the house. Yeah. Verse nineteen: A brother offended is harder to be won over than a strong city. 
and their contentions separate them like the bars of a castle. For me, this is a warning. It's talking about a brother, so we know who this person is. It's somebody, it could be a spiritual brother. A brother offended is harder to be won over than a strong city. In other words, do everything you can in your relationships not to offend people. Sometimes it happens. Jesus said offenses will come, right? Mm-hmm. It's but true. we guard against offending people. And when you do it, and sometimes when it's accidental on you, you hurt somebody and you maybe say something that offends them, you do everything you can to restore the relationship. You humble yourself. The Bible talks about quickly going to your friend or your neighbor or to your brother and quickly humbling yourself and saving yourself in this situation. I remember a few years ago, you know, it was Sunday morning, multiple services. I was talking to a group of people in the back and all of a sudden I got word, you have to run here to take care of this. And I I thought I said, oh, I got to go or something. And I ran only to have, as I was running into the office wing, this particular person's husband come to me and said, you really hurt my wife. Service getting ready to start. I had to run. I've been overly kind to his wife all the time. I've always gone out of my way to touch her, look in her eye, listen to her and and uh, speak positive words over her of love and, and acceptance. And he was like, you know, she's over there very upset. And I was thinking, really? Honestly, I've got to go. I've, I've been nothing but nice to her. And all of a sudden, I felt like the Holy Spirit says, nope. I felt the Holy Spirit says, you got to take care of this. And so I said, where is she? And he pointed, she was sitting down in a chair. So I ran over to her and I knelt down and I said, hey, what happened? He said that you were upset. Well, you just walked away suddenly and it really hurt my feelings because people always seem to walk away from me and and don't show me any respect. And I said, oh, I am so sorry. I got called to do something. I got to run real quick. But you know how much I value you. You know I'm always trying to be consistent. I just want you to know I apologize. I didn't mean it. Well, she hugged me with a great big smile on her face and she said, oh, I know you love me. Well, that probably took maybe one minute I ran back in. I still was faithful to my duties that I had to do. But, you know, I turned it from becoming an offense to this day. She just follows our ministry. She's a big supporter. But at that moment, if I hadn't taken those moments to humble myself, the walls would have only got bigger and bigger, cutting off all communication. Pam, this is a warning to all of us to be on the guard against allowing offense in. It's easy to have an off day or a week and allow yourself to be offended by others' actions or words. Yeah, I, I oh want to guard against hurting and offending other people. But at the same time, too, I don't want to get offended because I don't want to be the person that needs to be won over. I don't want to get this contention that separates me from people because the enemy loves for us to get offended. Yeah. He loves using offense to separate people because when you separate yourself from good people, and we read that right at the beginning of Proverbs 18, you know, he who willfully separates and estranges himself from God and man, a lot of times people do that because they get offended. Isn't that crazy? We do this to ourselves. They get offended with God and they're offended maybe with God's man or God's woman. I don't want to be like that. And Pam, Psalm 119, 165, you and I have talked about this many times and held on to it for our own lives. But it says, great peace have they who love your word. Nothing shall offend them or make them stumble. I hold on to that because I love my father's law and word. Nothing offends me or makes me stumble. I have great peace. Why? Because of Psalm 119, 165, I have great peace because I love God's word and nothing offends me or makes me stumble. It's kind of like a duck, you know, who has something on their feathers that repels water so they don't sink. Sheep now, when they get near water, you told me that the 23rd Psalm says he leads me beside still water because sheep can't get near. Sheep instinctively uh, 
avoid running water because something in them knows they'll drown or it's dangerous for them. Because it seeps Because in the their... wool obviously just sucks up the water and it would make them so heavy. It drags them down. They would drown even in a little bit of water. But ducks, on the other hand, their feathers have something that when the water gets on them, they just rolls right off. Doesn't mean that the water doesn't go on them. Sometimes they dive underneath the water to get something, but the water rolls off them. I always picture myself if I'm tempted to be offended. Thank you, Father, that <laughs> this is rolling off me now because I love your word. You have spiritual duck oil. Yes, I do. <laughs> Verse 20. A man's moral self shall be filled with the fruit of his mouth, and with the consequences of his word, he must be satisfied whether good or evil. Okay, so now we're getting into territory here. This, for me, is life-changing. It's been life-transformational for me, this whole talking about your tongue. A man's moral self shall be filled with the fruit of his mouth. If you want to get filled, whether it's for good or evil, your inner self ends up getting filled by the fruit of your mouth. So if you're speaking evil, if you're speaking negative, if you're speaking derogatory things, whatever that is on the negative side, it ends up filling your moral self. If you're speaking righteousness, if you're speaking these words, the book of Proverbs and and the gospels, and you're speaking promises out of God's word and Psalms, then you end up getting filled and satisfied with that. That ends up filling your inner man. And we know this, Jesus said, a good man out of the treasures Well, how did you get treasures on the inside? You filled them. You filled those accounts on the inside, and then it grows with interest, and then it comes out of your mouth again. So there's a matter of using your words to sow into your inner man, and then your words end up becoming a harvest to your outer man. That's so good. Isn't that amazing? It's so good. You know, in the last year, there's so many times we go down in early morning, late at night, go down the piano room and just start singing, and the Lord has been putting words and songs in our mouth to sing over ourself. Oh, yeah. And then to sing back to Him, and then now we get to sing it over people and put these words in their mouth so they can sing it over themselves and sing it back to God. And we believe this, Pam, that when we're singing, we're prophesying over the future. We're prophesying. So now if that word kind of freaks you out, prophesying, I think of it like this, you're blueprinting your future. Yes. When you sing the right stuff, you are authorizing judicially in the eyes of God, you're authorizing a blueprint for your future. So now if you're singing songs about cheating on your wife and your dog getting run over and your every truck you own getting stolen, well, then you're also legislating that kind of activity in your life. And you're like, what? Yes, yes. You're legally giving the spiritual realm, the illegal spiritual realm, right to bring destruction in your life. But I want to authorize, blueprint God's blessing into my future. So I use the word prophetically. I say, by singing these songs, we're prophesying. If it helps you in this modern day to think of it as spiritual engineering, you're sending spiritual engineering of blessing out in front of you with God's word and spirit into our future. That's right. And the word even says, that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. So I've sung the most joyful songs with tears streaming down my face, but knowing that I'm speaking and singing the joy and the peace of my Savior into my future. And those are the fields I believe that we're going to be walking into. Amen. Verse 20 goes right into verse 21. And my friends, I love Proverbs 18, 21. This verse has revolutionized, changed, transformed my whole existence. Verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they who indulge in it shall eat the fruit of it for death or life. And notice what it says. So many people quote this verse and they say, life and death. 
No, it actually, in every translation, it's worded this way, death and life. And the reason why I believe it mentions death first is because we are all born with the gravitational sin pull downward. Right. And we're all born with the need to have our tongues converted to speaking life. Speaking death, I think, comes natural for people. When a guy's out in the parking lot at a mall and his car isn't working and it won't turn over and he gets out and he begins cussing out his car stupid, no good for nothing, kicking the tires and, oh, I hate this car. It's good for nothing. It's just been trouble. I hate this car. Everybody looks at him and they're thinking, oh, man, isn't that too bad? That guy's having a a rough day, day, right? (laughs) Nobody thinks it's really like abnormal. Right. People are used to hearing someone get mad or or swear at their, their stuff or yell at a pothole. The worldly culture does not think it's abnormal to speak death. But now imagine, flip it, And imagine the guy speaking life over his vehicle and him out there going, I am so thankful for this vehicle. What a blessing from God this vehicle is. You do me good all my days. You don't do me bad. You work for me and you are a safe car and this is a blessing to me. And I believe in the name of Jesus, this car is going to start and it's going to be good on fuel. Everybody's going to be like, that guy is whacked. (laughs) That guy's weird. He was, mom, what was that man doing? I don't know, honey. I think he's he must be just out of a psych ward or off his medication. Yeah. Right? Isn't that funny? Because speaking yeah. life to this world is culturally weird, right? It's, it's, look, you know, at the shop or in the factory, when guys are in the lunchroom and they're kind of mocking marriage and they're trash talking marriage and, well, Frank, how's the old ball and chain doing? You know, that kind of thing. It's, oh, <laughs> you're very, you know, right? And it's all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's very normal. But when a man blesses his house, house and his marriage and speaks with God's words, speaks life over his marriage and over his future. People are like, yeah, he's weird. That's weird. They've got a weird marriage. Yeah. They're weird. Like they just, I don't know what it is. They like speak good things. They over. always speak blessings over each other. Like, are they religious or weird? Yeah. <laughs> or that kind of thing, right? I was a death talker. I want to just admit it straight up. I spoke negatively. I spoke death. I was in the ministry And, oh, you know, that kind of thing, like, well, that figures, that broke. Well, that figures, that fell through. Well, that figures, we're going further in debt. Well, Uh, that's just the way it goes. Let's just pray about it. But that figures, that kind of thing. And just speaking death. And I came across this verse and the Holy Spirit said, son, you need to die to death. You need to stop speaking these death words because you are getting a harvest on them and you are indulging in the wrong side of life. Well, that is and so Pam, good. I'm not going to lie so to you. True, me too. It was so difficult converting my words and ceasing from speaking death and forcing myself to speak life. And here's where it showed up. There'd be times when I felt like I would fail personally, that I would do something and did it wrong. There would be times when I did ministry and felt like I'm I embarrassed myself and I embarrassed God. And times like when I was on TV and I even just prayed wrong or said somebody's name wrong or you know what I mean, and just begin to have this sense I want to beat up on me and. I just wanted to, oh, I'm so stupid. And I wanted to say, you just can't do nothing right. I wanted to testify to it. And when somebody said, hey, how did ministry go? Or how did this go? Or I wanted to speak death. Oh, yeah. I understand that temptation. I'm just telling you the truth. I wanted to testify and somehow just say how awful it went because it was awful. But then this thing inside of me would say, Stephen, you've dedicated yourself to speaking life. If you're going to be a son of God, you need to align your words with your heavenly father's language that's from above. I think it's Romans 4, 17 says that we serve a God who speaks things that be not as though they were. 
right? You know, when God sees darkness, God doesn't say, oh, it's so dark in here. What God does is he steps into the darkness and he goes, light be. And that was the converting part of my heart. I suddenly started facing broken circumstances, death circumstances, and go, life be. I started, when things went wrong and my performance was bad, I would say, God's doing a work in me, and God's helping me, and I'm in process, and I'm coming through to the other side, and I'm going to be victorious. And I started speaking life. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. We all need to be speaking more and more life here on earth in Jesus' name. Verse 22, he who finds a true wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. What does that mean, a true wife? In other words, a wife that's true in her heart and her character before the Lord? Yeah, it's a qualifying word, he who finds a true wife. There's a scripture that says, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. But I think a lot of times on planet Earth, we're giving God credit for putting things together that God had nothing to do with. (laughs) Right? It says, he who finds a true wife, not just in name only, but who has the characteristics, the biblical characteristics of that anointing to be a true wife. So that means kind of like he who finds a true wife and husband, somebody that's true to the Lord, and they're honoring in their marriage vows and to each other with kindness. It's a good thing. Yeah. But just to have a marry anybody. I'm kind of thinking like a musician here. If somebody were to put in a band together and he who finds a true drummer, just because somebody walks in with a set of drumsticks doesn't mean that they're really a professional drummer. But he who finds a true drummer, somebody whose time is solid, who's got experience and who's really got the gifts of being a great drummer. He who finds a true pastor, just because somebody gets up in a church and in a pulpit and they preach doesn't mean they're a true pastor unless they've got the anointing that God has put on them to be a pastor. Jesus talked about that between a hireling and an actual shepherd. A Mm. shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. Right. That's a true shepherd. A hireling is like, hey, is that a wolverine or a wolf coming? I'm out of here. I'm not getting paid enough. I'm not getting paid enough for this, man. I'm out of here. So he who finds a true wife finds a good thing. And when it says good thing, it's not that the woman is a thing. Trust me, God never calls a woman a thing. What it really means is that the person who finds a true wife finds a good covenant, finds a good mm, agreement, yeah, that's good. finds a good treasure, finds what is really the favor of God. That's what it's talking about. Marriage is a discovery. It's an ultimate discovery. And you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that verse 22 follows verse 21. It's a good thing to learn to speak life and indulge in the words of life before you get into marriage. Hey, there's a great idea. Coincidentally, and thank God, before you and I got together, God had taught me Proverbs 18, verse 21, that I needed to indulge in speaking life and therefore enjoy the fruit of life, right? You've always spoken life over me. Pam, you are an amazing life singer, life talker, blesser. You speak life over me and you speak strength over me. And you're always watering the good things in me and diminishing anything bad. You don't focus on my weaknesses. You focus on the strengths. And I trust God that I speak life over you. You It's good to speak life over your marriage. Some people I see, they cannibalize their marriage. Yeah, that's right. I know they love one another deep in their heart, but they're constantly borrowing the world's verbiage. Right. And they're talking about their marriage in the world's terms. And it's like, ah, you know, marriage, right? Oh, man, we all need a break. And, you know, I think they're meaning it to be inclusive, kind of jesting with 
with the guys or the girls, wanting to be part of the club, but you're speaking, you're announcing death over the very thing that should be a blessing to your life. So speak life over your marriage, realizing that when you found a true wife, found a true husband, you have found something so good because it's God's covenant, God's favor, and you get that from the Lord. You know, we talk a lot about being, I am Christ ambassador, I am a diplomat for the kingdom of God, for Jesus, for heaven. But if we're not speaking words of life and blessing, you have a statement that says, you know, we were designed to bless. We're made in the image of God. Um, God created. He blessed things. They multiply. And God is the blessing. Right. So when we are in Christ Jesus and we're adopted into the family of God, becoming sons and daughters, that should be our very essence of who we are, to bless, to always speak life. Oh, that's so good, Pam. God is light, and in Him is no darkness. That's why we're called the children of light. Mm -hmm. We're called to be light in this world. We're called to let our light shine. Verse 23, the poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. Now, that's not saying that it's right, but I think 23 goes right along with 24. The man of many friends, a friend of all the world, will prove himself a bad friend. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Don't you think 23 and 24 kind of go together? I think so. You know, to a certain point, the poor man uses entreaties. You know, it's like, hey, hey, um, we're, we're going to do this right. Hey, boss. Right. Hey, hey. <laughs> Remember that little puppy in that commercial? He'd fall around the yeah. um, the, the bigger guy and he'd be like, yeah. hey, hey, boss, where are we going? Where are we going? Uh, you know, and it's like, you know, I think to a certain degree, too, when you are poor in spirit, you tend to use words of kindness, words of deference. That means like respect. Right. It's evidence of truly being humble. Basically, what the word entreaties means is to be like a plea and ask for mercy, for kindness, for benevolence, right? The poor man uses entreaties like, please, if you would please. You remember little Pip in the Charles Dickens story? Please, sir. Can I have some more soup? Please, sir. Right? So the poor uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. It's just kind of bluntly. So why would they put, like, it just seems, I know it's not random, but it seems like they plop that verse in the middle of two things that just doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. It's more of a biblical statement of this is just the way things are. It doesn't make it right, but this is just the way things are. The poor person uses supplications. He uses like a a submissive, humble manner in approaching things. And please, sir, can I have some more soup? That kind of thing. It's a modesty. That's just the way it is. The, The poor person uses entreaties. But the rich answer roughly, they answer with kind of an arrogance. But kind that's of a, not the right way to do kind it. Kind of a hardness with rough words. It's not necessarily that it's supposed to be that way, but that's commonly the way it is. Well, for all us people that want to be rich in the Lord, we should not answer roughly. <laughs> well, you know, and I think too, how we answer, we just learn from words that there's death and life in the power of the tongue. Mm-hmm, right. This is why we've read through the Proverbs that it's better to have a little with the humble than to have great feasting with the proud and the arrogant. That's it. Now that's it. Because we know that the Bible says, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. But we read earlier that before honor comes humility. Before before honor. Before honor. <laughs> But we read before honor comes humility. Right. It's the the, way it is in the world a lot. Yeah, this man's walking in humility. We know he's destined for honor. Mm -hmm. The rich answer, roughly, if they're being unkind and arrogant, 
There's nothing wrong with being rich. But if you're using your wealth, if that's your, in your arrogance, it's your strong city, and you just answer arrogantly and roughly, the Bible says that your words are bringing destruction on you. Right. And I do think that, you know, you can answer someone firmly to the point, but with kindness. 24. The person of many friends, a friend of all the world, will prove himself a bad friend. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know, I used to, in the world of Facebook, in a world of friending, in a world of social media, and even in our culture, the word friend is so loosely thrown around. And I used to think that, you know, well, that I barely knew that person. Oh, yeah, they're a friend of mine. You know, I was in an elevator with them or something and said three words. They're a friend of mine. You know, we were at the same place or something. But, you know, I quickly realized you can't be a friend to everybody. Can I love everybody? Can I bless everybody? Can I be kind and merciful to everybody in the world? Yes, that's God's will. But you know what? I can't be a friend of someone that's brutalizing and beating my my friend, you know, like right. consistently going in their bank account and stealing from them. Do I not hold any animosity against them? Do I forgive them? But I can't call them my friend and call this person my friend. You know, there's a prerequisite for being a friend. There's a what? There's a prerequisite? Prerequisite. <laughs> How do you say it? Pre. <laughs> there's a protocol. <laughs> there, there's a prerequisite? Yes. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. You say it. Prerequisite. 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 Prerequisite for yeah. being my friend, for being a friend. And it doesn't mean that I don't, I don't tell people, you're not my friend. But, you know, like <laughs> there is a protocol. <laughs> you know, there was a protocol with Jesus. You teach this a lot in your um, seminar, Winning Communications and also uh, Kingdom Relationships. Jesus said, I love everyone. I came to give my life for this world, to lay down my life. No greater love than this, to redeem you. But if you want to be called my friend, this is what Jesus said. I call people my friend who want to hear what I have to say and want to do what I have to say. And so I think so many times we just want to be the friend of the world, but that's a bad friend. You know, too many friends. Be, oh, it's it's true. Know? When we read James 4, it's in verse 4, it says, you're like unfaithful wives. You're having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. Don't you know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world takes a stand as an enemy of God. Sometimes we get this thing where, well, God so loved the world, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God had the ability in his justness and his righteousness to give his pure son as an atonement to win the world, but the world still has to make a decision to come to Jesus. Yes. The rich young ruler still had to submit to the words of Jesus. You've got to come to Jesus. And I think sometimes we kind of diminish what the word of love meant when God said he loved the world, thinking that it's basically holding hands with the world and cuddling up to the world. That's not love. Well, being a friend, even right here, not only being a friend to anybody that is anti-God way of thinking and doing things, but also being a friend, figuratively speaking, with the ways of the world. You cannot be a friend with anti-God way of thinking and doing things and expect to be a good friend 
to your family, to your intimate friends. It's impossible. This last part of that verse gets me to, for there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I know we refer to that as being Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. And I know it probably is, you can tell me. But I also feel like if we understand what true friendship is, and we're a true friend of God, and we're not a friend, we love the world, but we're not a friend of the world's way of thinking and doing things, then we can truly be faithful to our friends to our family, can truly be there through the good and bad times. Well, let's gauge it based on the words of Jesus again, because I I so trust and love the words of Jesus. And in John 15, starting at verse 15, he's talking to the disciples, and he said, I don't call you servants any longer. For three and a half years, he called them servants as they were going through the discipleship process. I don't call you servants any longer, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But now I call you my friends, because I've made known to you everything that I've heard from my Father. I think it's important to take back the term friend, friendship. The world keeps trying to water down the word friend. Yeah, we got Facebook friends like you were talking about. Right. They keep trying to diminish the value, the integrity of what that word friend means. But it should be something that's very strong and something that has trust built into it. The old trust factor. And we go back to this verse that you started out with, 24. The man of many friends, the woman of many friends will prove themselves to be a bad friend. I think we can all say we've experienced that. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Thank God for Jesus. It's so important to have friends that have strong, healthy, godly loyalty built into it. Like I've said, an L word that means the world to me is loyalty. Oh, the great L word. Everybody thinks of the L word being love, but if love doesn't have loyalty, it's really the world's kind of love. It's cheap, but loyalty. So there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's a person who's trustworthy, who's faithful, and who's loyal. Those are all godly characteristics. So true. Pam, let's pray the word of God over ourselves and over our friends right now. Yes. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you that you have put the power of Almighty God, that creative power, life in our tongues. And so, Lord, we choose to indulge in speaking, praying, singing life. Yes. Your eternal life. Father, thank you for your words that we can fit in our mouth, train our hearts, convert our character under the power of the Holy Spirit with the help of the Word of God to become people who speak life, yes. who prophesy life over our future. And no matter how painful it is, Lord, to put that at the cross and receive the ability, the anointing to sing and to speak life in Jesus' precious name. We have a prudent mind, so therefore we're ever getting knowledge. That's why we come to your word. We have an ear that's wise and ever-seeking, inquiring for craving knowledge. We believe we receive that. And Father, thank you for giving all of us different gifts and different talents, and that as we use them appropriately as good stewards, Father, that it opens doors and brings us before great influential people. Father, I thank you that we put our hand on our mouth and we put our hand on our head, and we say, mouth and mind, heart will and emotions speak the way of God speak life speak blessings this is what you were created for so mouth and mind I command you in heart speak and proclaim life in the words of God yes father and I thank you that God when we come to you when it comes to the lot we never get the short straw we mm-hmm. never thank do you, Holy Spirit. father God when we come to you we get your best. Yes. In John 17, 23, Jesus said, Father, help them to know that you love them with the same love that you love me. Father, you love us 
with the same love that you love Jesus. We don't get the short straw. Yes, that's right. And Father God, I thank you that you've set us free from the law of sin and death, according to Romans 8, with the law of life in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, we repent of all haughtiness and arrogance. And Father God, we embrace submission to the truth, your humility, knowing that, Father, under your hand, God, we are positioned for that crown of honor and you lift us up to inherit the land. <laughs> yes. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. Please help us out by giving this podcast a five-star review and saying something that'll encourage others to listen and enjoy this time of ministry. And everyone, just remember that you are born Born to win. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Stephen and Pam Marshall. To receive more information or more teaching, go to www.stephenandpam.com. Stephen and Pam Ministries is a 501c3 charitable organization, and your gift helps us to take this message to 1,000 communities worldwide.